0: The table audio is made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton Religion Trust.
1: The heart of Christianity is personal relationship, Mm -hmm. persons sharing love with each other. And so for Christians, the greatest thing for a human being is not character development, but it's loving personal relationship. And the idea in the Christian tradition is that something about suffering enables you, doesn't make you, but it enables you to open and open and open and open more deeply to God, and when you are more open to God, you are also more open to other people. So that the best thing for human beings in the world is personal relationship, and that's the thing that suffering enables you to have more of.
0: I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio, a podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's big questions. Eleanor Stump is an exemplar of faith-seeking understanding, Fides querens Intellectum. She's a philosopher in the Thomas tradition, which she brings fiercely and beautifully to bear in her incisive philosophical commentary and analysis on difficult matters. And by my lights, she never loses a sense for the big picture, a sense for how things fit together. And I suppose you need that gift if you're going to write 600-page philosophy books, as Stump is wont to do. In fact, you get the sense that every book Eleanor writes deserves the modifier magisterial in front of it. And honestly, rightly so. She is the Robert J. Henley Professor of Philosophy at St. Louis University, where she's taught since 1992. She's also an honorary professor at Wuhan University and the Logos Institute at University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And she's a professorial fellow at Australian Catholic University. She's published extensively in philosophy of religion, contemporary metaphysics and medieval philosophy. Her books include a major study of Thomas Aquinas, her extensive treatment of the problem of evil wandering in darkness is the focal piece for this interview. And her most recent work on the atonement of Christ came out just last year here In Eleanor, we have just another example of a rightly feeling intellect, to borrow a phrase associated with C.S. Lewis, orienting our philosophical insights around right feeling and an appreciation for the highest and purest desires of the heart. Eleanor Stump interweaves into her version of the Odyssey insights that can only be had through narrative elements, biblical and other ancient stories, poetry even from anonymous sources, medieval hymns, and more. Through these insights, you see a lifting of human subjective values to their highest and deepest, the desire for God. In this interview, we discuss the core of what a Christian ought to care about most, the phenomenology and experience of suffering, Eleanor's take on the question of whether God suffers and dies, and finally, how interpersonal union is intimately connected to finding meaning in suffering. Across each of these issues, you'll hear in Eleanor a gentleness and kindness of spirit that's equaled only by the carefulness and precision of her philosophical analysis.
1: You know, the West has thought about the problem of suffering for many centuries, and of course not just the West. This problem is represented, can be found in the thought of uh, every culture going. And it's a thought that goes something like this. If there is some sort of supernatural entity that watches over human beings, if that entity or entities has care for human beings and has power and mind, why do we suffer the way we do? Hmm. What's wrong with our world that it looks like this? Now, there are some people who think, Obviously, because we suffer the way we do, there can't be any such supernatural entity that watches over us. There couldn't be. And the thought of these people is something like this. Look, if you want to tell me that um, you've just been diagnosed with leukemia, and the dog died, and the house burned down, and your mother got lost with, because she has dementia, and no one can find her. She's wandering somewhere in the city. I can understand what you're saying. And if you want to add in on top of this that there's an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being who really loves you, then I'm going to think something's wrong in this story. So that's the problem with suffering. It seems as if these things don't make sense. This story doesn't make sense.
2: I wonder if you'd comment on what, what you take the, the nature, perhaps the psychological aspects, the, the phenomenology of suffering, to be, what is suffering?
1: Well, that's a good question. So often, unreflectively, we think suffering is a matter of pain. If you have pain, you're suffering. And if you don't have any pain, you're not suffering. But that's a kind of um, a limited way to think about suffering, for sure. There's a lot of bad things that happen to people that don't have pain in them. And there are even some things that have pain in them that don't really count as suffering. So there are women who strongly prefer what we call natural childbirth, which is childbirth without anesthetic, and they suffer. For sure they do. But even after having tried it once, there are women who will want to do it again because something about that pain doesn't seem to them to be aversive but it seems to them to be ingredient in something that they prize and value. Mm. And really, nobody says the fact that there are women who choose to have natural childbirth and suffer in it, that's what shows me there is no God. I mean, people don't talk that way. So what this shows you is that pain is not necessary or sufficient for suffering. Mm. So another way to think about suffering, and it's an age-old way that is very wise, is to see suffering as a function of what we care about. We care about our own flourishing, as the human beings that we are, and the things that get in the way of that flourishing, those are the things that that cause us suffering. If you know that something about the oppressive society in which you've lived makes it impossible for you to give your child an education of any kind, you will suffer on behalf of your child, because education is part of what goes into human flourishing. So there are all those things that make human beings the best they can be, and when a person is deprived of some of those, she suffers. But on top of that, on top of that, there are the things that have value for us just because we set our hearts on them. Hmm. So... um,
2: Based on our desires.
1: Yeah. These are things we care about, not because in themselves they are intrinsically valuable on the contrary they have value for us because we set our hearts on them Mm. so I have children you have children and I don't think my children are more valuable than your children Mm. I really don't but I love my children way more than I love yours (laughs) so my children have much more value for me than your children have for me not because I assess the intrinsic value of the children that way but this is a case where something has value because you set your heart on it.
2: Something matters to you.
1: Something matters to you yeah. and has value to you because it matters to you. Right. So um, maybe your your grandmother has passed away and was very dear to you, but before she died, she left you the quilt she had made when she was a young girl, and now that quilt, which may be old and tattered and faded, this is a priceless object to you. Mm-hmm. So we have things we set our hearts on, and when we lose those or we fail to get those, then we suffer too. Mm -hmm. So one way or another, it's what we care about that makes suffering. And therefore, the question is really something like this. If there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, perfectly loving God, why wouldn't he want you to have what is good for you and what you care about? Mm -hmm. That's how you would feel toward your own child. Why wouldn't the deity think that about his children?
2: That's what sets up what philosophers call theodicy, an answer or an attempt defense to the problem of evil, to the problem of suffering. What are your starting points for thinking about theodicy?
1: Well, see, it goes something like this. Um, people think, okay, look, there couldn't be a world that had suffering and God in it. It just couldn't be. But, of course, that's way too fast. the The response is, yeah, but yeah, but there could be if God had a morally sufficient reason for allowing you to suffer. Mm. And then the question on the other side is, oh, yeah, and what would that reason be right. exactly? Right. And now we are off on running on the project called Theodicy.
2: And that reason appears to be something that would be deeply tied to human purpose. I mean, uh, suffering is so rampant mm-hmm. and so universal uh, mm-hmm. that, that whatever that morally sufficient reason is... Uh, It sounds like it must be tied fairly deeply to the core
1: Mm -hmm. elements of human purpose. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What's really interesting, if you look at the history of the Christian West, is to see the way in which this um, problem has and has not come up. So um, for us, it's an obvious problem. It's an obvious problem. But if you look back at the patristic period, in the first centuries after Christ, when the persecution of Christians was severe, it's worth noticing that not only do the Christians of that period who are suffering in the persecution not ever, ever think to raise the problem of suffering, never even think about it. Mm. And, w- and why, you might ask, you know, but why, but they don't. And not only that, but they celebrate, they glorify the people who suffer.
2: There's this expectation almost.
1: It's an expectation that there is something absolutely magnificent in being allowed to suffer in this way. Mm -hmm. So Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, the famous patristic uh, theologian, he knows that there are people who are scandalized at the sight of Christian suffering in these persecutions. And he says, people who are scandalized at this suffering don't realize that having this suffering is the privilege of those who are specially dear to God. Not every age, not every culture sees suffering in in the same way. Right. And if you think about your own children, you begin you begin to have some idea of how to look at this problem in a different way. So, um, you get a magic lamp, Aladdin's magic lamp and the genie appears and says, "What would you like?" Would you like me? Evan, would you like me to make it the case that for each one of your children, that child never has any suffering? No no skin knees, no failure to get a valentine at school on Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. no disappointments, no heartbreak. Would you like that? Cuz I can do that. And then you're going to think to yourself, hmm. Would a human being without any kind of suffering Really be the human being I hope my children will be. Right, right. Yeah, and you can see the point right away. So it's tied to the fact that you know that the children who grow up in highly protective, overprotective, mm. rich, coddled sort of Comfort. surroundings where they never face suffering and they never face challenges, you know they're not gonna come out very well.
0: Mm. Stay tuned. Plenty more from Eleanor Stump in just a moment. Hello friends. Thanks for giving us a place at your table. It's a gift for us to bring these conversations into your life, and we hope you find them meaningful and memorable. Throughout season three of the podcast, we'll be offering a brand new online course. It's free to all of our email newsletter subscribers and free to sign up. It's called Charting a Course Through Grief, and it's all about providing much-needed perspectives on dealing with the pain of loss. This stuff isn't easy to talk about, but we need to. Not far beneath the shiny facade of the smiley, how you doing, I'm fine version of American happiness. We all know that darkness, that loneliness, and the real pain that's there. This course doesn't take the place of counseling, therapy, or healing of loving encounters with God, friends, and family. But there are words beautiful words and ideas and stories that provide for us companions for our journeys of grief. And it's right in line with our goal to continue to seek Christian wisdom for life's biggest questions. So we've curated an email-based course that brings a weekly variety of perspectives on depression, disability, disease, and death, bringing Christian resources for healing and growth within and through and despite these painful events of life. We're developing new content, Dusting off old content, as well as providing helpful resources and references for continued education and exploration. Charting a course through grief is totally free. So head over to cct.biola.edu slash grief and sign up today. We don't see eye to eye on everything, but all of us will someday encounter deep personal suffering. So here's an opportunity for us to learn, pray, meditate, and open up to the opportunities for growth in the face of suffering. Check out the link and description in the show notes, or head over to our website to sign up. Again, that's cct.biola.edu slash grief. And of course, thanks for listening to The Table Audio. Now back to our conversation.
1: There's something about suffering that goes into character formation, not in the sense that it makes a person courageous and temperate, but in the sense that it makes a person deep, spiritually deep wise and so on Christianity is characterized by a doctrine of God as Trinity at the ultimate foundation of all reality there are persons and you can't reduce those persons to anything impersonal and you can't reduce the three of them to anything else that is just one Mm. the doctrine of the Trinity says that Though there is just one God, there are three persons, and they don't reduce to anything else. The heart of Christianity is personal relationship, Mm -hmm. persons sharing love with each other. And so for Christians, the greatest thing for a human being is not character development, but it's loving personal relationship. And the idea in the Christian tradition is that something about suffering enables you, doesn't make you, but it enables you. To open and open and open and open more deeply to God. And when you are more open to God, you are also more open to other people. So that the best thing for human beings in the world is personal relationship. And that's the thing that suffering enables you to have more of. That's the idea. And, of course, it's just an enabling. It doesn't guarantee it. You can, you can become bitter and hateful in suffering also. Right. And it is really important to see that neither for the Greeks nor for the Christians does this thought about suffering change it from being a bad thing to a good thing. To say that something conduces to a good end isn't to say that it's intrinsically good. Chemotherapy drugs are valuable. We're grateful for them. They save lives, but in themselves they're just poison. They poison the whole system. Mm -hmm. So if you have a child with cancer and the doctor says good news, good news, it's a very treatable kind of childhood cancer, we've got drugs for these, and um, of course the bad news is, you know, the drugs are, the drugs are toxic, and your child's going to suffer, but we will heal them with these drugs. Then you'll be so grateful for the drugs because of the good that they produce, but in themselves they're awful, and suffering is like that. In itself is awful and you must never forget it. And there's nothing about theodicy that can change that. So theodicy says that by means of this awfulness the best thing open to human beings will be yours. But the thing in question that helps get you there is so awful. That's the way it works. So the morally sufficient reason for God to allow suffering has to do with the goods that suffering brings. But those goods closer personal relationship with a loving God and with each other, that um, doesn't make suffering any less awful. And you must never get confused and think it does. So sometimes I have been asked, "Can you condense your 660-page book on the problem <laughs> of evil into just a couple of minutes for us?" <laughs> and then It'll I say no. And then, and then I do it. I do it like this. I say, "I'm one of those people who hates talking to people on a plane." I get on the plane, I pull my book out real fast, <laughs> so you know I'm not available for talking to you. I don't want a conversation with you. I want to be by myself, alone, and I want you to stay away. But if that plane starts to go down, I will talk to anybody. And now you begin to understand, It is something about the nature of suffering and the terrible thing that suffering is hmm. that opens us up. It's an opening. It's, it opens us up. In those circumstances we will reach out to one another and we will reach out to God too and without that we will be inclined to withdraw in ourselves into a kind of will loneliness that seems to us both comfortable and safe but that is in the end the real the real toxic thing for us
2: I recently heard a, uh, a quote by the author who know Diaz who wrote the brief but wondrous life of Oscar Wilde? He said that vulnerability is the precondition to contact.
1: I th- I believe that that is true, really. But I would I would turn it just a little. I would say it's your own perception of your own vulnerability. That's oh, yeah. the that's the precondition because we, the vulnerability we all have constantly, but a lot of us prefer not to recognize it or not to accept it.
2: We remain, and that leaves us remaining closed.
1: That is, that is correct. And, I, and here I just need to say one more time, you know, um, nothing about this makes evil at all uh, a good thing. doesn't right. turn the world upside down in that way. Suffering remains lamentable, and each of us has a duty to do whatever we can to alleviate it, prevent it, and so on. In um, the whole earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. And that is a horrible fact but one thing worth noticing is it's a horrible fact about us you know that's that's who we are Hmm. we perpetrate such ghastly suffering on one another that's part of the story that's part of the vulnerability we have to recognize too we are prone to do these things to one another and that kind of recognition is also important for the problem of suffering so think about our great heroes So for me, a great hero is Harriet Tubman. I have great admiration for her. I have awe at what she accomplished as a human being. I think her life is splendid and luminous. And I think it is in part because of the terrible things she suffered. Does that make me feel any more friendly towards the people who enslaved her or the people who afflicted her? It doesn't. On the contrary, it makes me, I don't know what, it makes me hate them. They deserve that kind of mm-hmm. hatred because there is, in the evil that was perpetrated on the slaves in this country, there is an evil really worth rejecting with as much vehemence as you can manage. Yeah. Nonetheless, it is the case she's a luminous example of a human being. Mm-hmm.
2: So, with vulnerability as our context, with being open to relationships, I wonder if you'd say a little bit about story and narrative and, 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 uh, and reading these lives as a way of helping us to understand and answer.
1: That's where I was starting when I was saying to you, if you just look at these things in a a pedestrian way as philosophical claims, they make... they have very little purchase on you. But when I tell you the story about the plane, all of a sudden, the point comes home to you. Well, in the same way, when we... when we hear a story, if it's a good story, if it's a, a well-done story, we see the, the myriad details that go into a human life. So I told a little thin story about Harriet Tubman. But If you actually go to look at any particular detail of her life, it's the details that are necessary for thinking about whether God was justified in allowing her suffering. Hmm. She herself thought he was. And if you look at the way in which she herself understands her life and the details of the things that she suffered and the details of the heroic actions she undertook and so on, in all those details, you might say the problem of evil lives in these details about human yeah. lives. Yeah. And you aren't going to get details in abstract philosophical prose. That's the
2: point. Certainly not. Yeah. In okay. fact, that's what leads many people to, to respond to... Attempts at theodicy or attempts at answering the theoretical problem of evil uh, It feel it, it leaves us understandably feeling cold feeling unsatisfied
1: or angry and offended and insulted and I understand that reaction Entirely and often this I think is also part of the story here often these plain philosophical approaches to the problem of suffering, they think just in terms of character formation or they think just in terms of some individual intrinsic good related to human flourishing that can be got out of suffering. And then people feel in their hearts that this is an inhuman way of thinking about human suffering. And you can see it if you think about Job. So if you think that the point of suffering is character formation, then here's what you're saying to Job. Hey, Job, I'll take all your kids and kill them all, but don't worry, I'm going to trade you something for this, and here's what I'm going to trade you for. You'll have a much better character than you otherwise would. And now any decent person would say, keep your stupid character formation and let me keep the kids. Right. so it is important to understand that suffering has got a lot more human detail, a lot more human complexity to it than something as simple as intrinsic, individual, valuable characteristics of a person. And it's also important to see the details of what a trade could be in any individual life, when you, when when, what you lose in suffering. Or think about it this way. In suffering, you lose something that you care about. And now if God is going to be justified in allowing that suffering, it has to be that somehow you get more of what you care about than you would if you hadn't suffered. One way to think about the story of Job here is um, is, is to notice that Job has the longest face-to-face conversation with God of any character anywhere right. in the biblical stories yes. ever, ever. yeah. And that's part of the story, too. If you leave that out, it's harder to understand what's going on in that biblical book.
0: After the break, Eleanor responds to the question of God's suffering and the nature and meaning of personal union for theodicy and the problem of evil. If you're looking for other ways to grow in wisdom, check out Biola Learn, Biola University's lifelong learning platform. There you'll find online courses from Biola faculty covering a variety of topics, everything from faith in the workplace to spiritual formation to finance to the art and science of relationships. Visit biola.edu slash learn to check out the growing course catalog. And use the promo code TABLE15, that's T-A-B-L-E-1-5, at the checkout for 15% off your next course enrollment. Now, while we're at it, personally, I'd recommend you sign up for CCT's Biola Learn course, Seeking Christian Wisdom for Life's Big Questions. I mean, did you think it would be called something else? It features seven segments you can take at your own pace, each focusing on one of CCT's yearly research themes from the past seven years, each led by a Biola professor. We've got J.P. Moreland, Elizabeth Hall, Tim Muhlhoff, Tom Crisp, Steve Porter, Kent Dunnington, and even Biola's president, Dr. Barry Corey. The course covers neuroscience and the existence of the soul, Christianity's radical approach to humility and love, how to disagree and remain civil, and more. Learn Christian wisdom online at your own pace through Biola Learn. Once again, that's biola.edu learn. And make sure to cash in with the promo code TABLE15 for 15% off. Now back to the show.
2: Sometimes we say the devil's in the details, but perhaps God is in the details. Yeah. And I, what I wonder is, in, in, even in the midst of that conversation and or beyond the conversation with Job, I wonder if what your perspective is on God's experience of suffering. Does God suffer? And does the kind of break, the psychic break within a human person and the break of relationship with God, what kind of pain does that cause God?
1: Well, here's, here's the thing that really matters to me. It matters to me that Christians are literate in their own tradition. Hmm. You, can't, you can't do any good in medicine if you try to figure it out for yourself from scratch. You have to learn from what everybody else has already done. And in the same way, any culture cut off from its own tradition is correspondingly weakened. There is a marvelous deposit of expertise for the Christian community in the theological tradition from the patristic period through now. So start with that deposit and and look at it, and then you get the answer to your question that goes like this. So... Does God suffer? Certainly not. A perfectly good, perfectly omniscient, perfectly powerful being and so on doesn't suffer at all. Point one. Mm -hmm. Point two, um, what is Christ? One person with two natures, Mm -hmm. a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. And who's the person? One person with two natures, who's the person? Is the second person of the Trinity, and therefore God. Now, when Christ does anything, he does it either in his divine nature or he does it in his human nature. In his human nature, he can be hungry. In his divine nature, he can't be, and so on. But the only person doing anything is a divine person. So when there's somebody there who's hungry... The hungers in the divine nature, but the only person to feel that hunger is a divine person. So now let's go back to where we were. Does you God meant that suffer? The
2: hungers in the human nature.
1: Hungers in the human nature and the person is a divine person. So go back to the question, does God suffer? And the answer is certainly. Of course, <laughs> in the human nature which God has in yes. the incarnate Christ. And let's add in dying. Can God die? Right. Of course not. Certainly not, because a perfect being can't die. But, of course, when Christ dies, the only person there is to die, the only available person who's the subject of dying, that would be a divine person. So it's heretical to deny that God dies. That's interesting. That's a very complicated, interesting result. And now let's backtrack again to where you started, how... When we suffer, does God suffer? Well, um, when the biblical text said Jesus weeps, who's weeping? We have only one candidate. The person of the incarnate Christ is weeping, and that person is divine. That's God weeping.
2: One of the components of your work in Wandering Darkness is Establishing as a, as a centrality the union or the united love between God and human persons, a kind of uh, desire for that union on the part of God, and really a, a, a perhaps a remote, perhaps broken, but a, but, a, but a present desire in human persons as well. Can you speak to why union matters in the context of answering the problem of suffering?
1: Well, see... I- Everything depends on what you take union to be. You take hydrogen and oxygen and unite them in the right sort of way and you'll get water. And there are people who think about union between God and human beings in the same sort of way. You unite them and then you get some divine attributes that show up in the human nature or some human attributes that show up somehow connected to the divine nature and so on. But that actually is not what we really mean when we talk about union between persons. For union between persons, we mean something second personal, something where there are two things, each of which counts as having a mind and a will, and so being a person. And each of these two persons are somehow in a position to say you to the other one.
2: There's an I-thou relationship.
1: Exactly. And the interesting thing to notice about the deity is God likes to say you to everything. So when in Job, God says to the ocean, what God wants to determine that the ocean goes has boundaries and doesn't overflow its boundaries. Mm-hmm. God speaks to the ocean with second personal address. Oh. Thus far your waves go and no further. And when Christ is... Um, determined to punish the fig tree for not producing figs, he doesn't say, may this fig tree be blasted, or he doesn't say, I'm blasting the fig tree, or the fig tree won't bear figs anymore. He says, no man eat fruit of you forever. Mm. He addresses the fig tree as you. And um, Hmm. Jerome, commenting on a similar place where Christ rebukes the waves by saying to the waves, you be still, Jerome says, this is what it is to be God. These things are your creatures. And so you can say you to them, and they can say you back to to God. That doesn't mean panpsychism is right, Jerome says. It means that that's what it is to be in a relationship of creature to creator. Hmm. If even waves and fig trees can be addressed as you by by God or the Incarnate Christ, then see, we can also. And how much more? And how much more. And so union is a matter of being in a position, you might say, to share attention with God, to share face-to-face interaction with God and the old the old lore about the fruits of the holy spirit goes like this every christian every person in grace has the indwelling holy spirit and the fruits of the holy spirit begin like this love joy peace love because your beloved is yours and you are his Joy because you have a joy in the presence of your beloved and peace because what is more worth wanting than anything else is yours already. That's what union is. And you don't get love, joy, and peace because your beloved is yours and you are his if all we've got is that you get some divine attributes. So people who think of deification or theosis as a matter of somehow underneath the level of consciousness, you're getting some really cool stuff in your nature, they are missing what is actually on offer. What is actually on offer is to be in face-to-face relationship with your maker who loves you. That's the idea. And nothing can be better than that. Nothing can be greater than that. Nothing can be more glorious than that. And nothing besides that, in the end, will really bring you love, joy, and peace.
2: What you do in the book with the use of art, poetry, literature, and story that's interwoven into your philosophical argument, you use epigrams every chapter to perhaps get at some of this kind of contact knowledge, this personal knowledge that can't be done just through left-brain means So I wonder if you first maybe read us an example of some of the things that you've included in, in the book
1: so the Epigram for the whole book is a little bit from a poem that was found in Auschwitz after the war And it was written on the wall by someone who suffered horribly in an unspeakable evil and it goes like this It says there is grace though wonder on the way, only they are hard to see, hard to embrace, for those compelled to wander in darkness.
2: Eleanor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. It's it's an honor to host you here, and uh, I look forward to your next book.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, too. Thank you for a good interview. Thank Thank you. you.
0: That's it for this episode. If you'd like to check out a video version of my interview with Eleanor Stump, head over to our YouTube channel or our website. You can check the show notes for that. Thanks for listening, friends. Peace to your wanderings, whether in light or in darkness. The Table Audio is hosted and produced by me, Evan Rosa, and is a resource of the Bio University Center for Christian Thought, which is sponsored by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Production and engineering by the Narrativa Group. More at narrativagroup.com. Edited and mixed by T.J. Hester. Production assistance by Laura Crane. To subscribe to The Table Audio, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what we're up to, and you'd like to support us, you can do a couple things. Tell your friends and share this episode, or give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And I'm not just saying that. It really works. On Twitter, you can follow me, at Evan Subrosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought, at Biola CCT, or visit our website, cct.biola.edu.